Welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves. And I'm Don Bishop. We're your hosts for Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Jay Murakoshi, and he'll be answering your most important questions on fly fishing Baja's Sea of Cortez. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you would like to ask Jay a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and click on the link below the description of the show where it says click here to ask Jay Murakoshi your most important question. We'll receive your questions immediately and we'll try to answer as many of your questions as possible live on the show. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about one hour after the show ends. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website at your convenience and listen to the broadcast anytime. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll talk with Jay Murakoshi and find out his secrets about fishing in Baja's Sea of Cortez. Once in a generation, an innovation comes along that turns an industry on its head. In fly fishing, this is without a doubt the AST generation. AST, Advanced Shooting Technology, is scientific anglers' patented dry slick coating that enhances every aspect of floating line performance. Shootability, castability, floatability, durability. Look for AST in Scientific Angler's Mastery Series and Ultra 4 fly lines. And please remember, Try an AST-formulated line just once, and no other fly line will ever do. Visit www.scientificanglers.com or call 800-430-5000. That's 800-430-5000 to find your nearest Mastery Series dealer. Before we introduce Jay Murakoshi, we'd like to let you know about the great gifts we have to give away tonight. On our drawing tonight, Jay has been kind enough to provide a Clouser Tropical Fly Line by Rio, and a dozen of the favorite flies he uses for fishing in Baja and for stripers. If you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage, which is at www.askaboutflyfishing.com, and look for the link under Jay's section that says Register for Drawing. Click on that link, fill out the form, and uh, then you'll be registered. We'll be announcing the winner at the end of the show. Well, tonight's guest is Jay Murakoshi and he will be answering your questions on fishing Baja's Sea of Cortez. Jay has been in the fly fishing business for the past 30 plus years, including some 30 years of commercial fly tying. His fly patterns have been featured in Fly Fishing in Saltwaters, California Fly Fisher, Western Outdoors, and Southwest Fly Fishing. Jay has been doing seminars, clinics, and fly tying demos since the early 80s, and along with his partner Ken Handley, he conducts on-the-water seminars as well as guided fly fishing trips in California saltwaters and in Baja. Jay's on the pro staff for G. Loomis, Bauer Fly Rods, Airflow Lines, and Angler Sport Group. It's a great pleasure for us to welcome Jay Murakosi to our show. Jay, thanks for joining us tonight. Hello, hey, you there? Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, Jay, you just got back from Baja a couple of weeks ago, and uh, how was how was fishing down there? Uh, the fishing was about the first four weeks was sort of slow, but it started picking up as the water warmed up and the temperature air temperature came up. The fishing picked up. When I left, 
we were catching Dorado probably by the boatloads, I would say. One boat probably had about 30 Dorado in one fishing day. In one fishing day. That's wow. incredible, isn't it? I mean, yes, it is. I mean, what's what's an average day down there? Okay. Well, an average day is usually maybe four to six Dorado, a few roosters, a lot of skipjack, and some jack ravel. So you're getting quite a variety there. Of, uh... Yes, we are. Well, Jay, we've uh, got a whole host of questions that have come in in advance of the show. Uh, one of the things that people are, are wondering is just some kind of basic information. How do they get to Baja? Well, the way we get down there is we fly through LAX. Like I, I live in Fresno, so I, I live out of Fresno Airport and fly to Los Angeles and then Los Angeles down to which right now we're flying in a, into San Jose del Cabo because of Aero California is not flying anymore. So we had to fly into San Jose del Cabo and then we take a shuttle van, which is about a two and a half to three hour drive up to La Paz where we stay at the La Concha Hotel. Is it practical to consider driving down? If you plan on staying uh, any length of time, I would probably prefer to drive down. That way you do have transportation on your own rather than trying to rent a car in Mexico. Um, I'm thinking about next year when I go down to do the driving down there, but I'm not quite sure after seeing some of the drivers down there. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> They're all pretty much two-lane roads down there, isn't it? Pretty much two lanes, and if for those of you who have been down there in the past or the present, you see, the stop signs don't mean stop; they mean yield. So nobody <laughs> really stops at them. Yeah, my my last experience driving down there was about oh, about 30 years ago. So uh, it was and real. It's changed. Yeah, it's real primitive back then. I'll tell you, it really was. Well, um, you said you now you you go uh, from you fly down to Cabo, you go into La Paz, and then you fish out of La Paz. No, what we do is we. We used to fish out of the uh, Las Arenas Hotel before it closed down about five years ago, which was really convenient because it was right there on the beach where we fished. But now we have to commute about one hour every day to the beach and back. We usually leave at 5.30 in the morning and get back around 4 o'clock. I try and give you a full seven, eight, seven and a half hours of fishing day. Uh, which usually it ends up to be about five to six hours because everybody's tired by lunchtime. Are there other towns to fish out of besides? Uh, the, yes, the you can, if you really want to go, what I would say, sort of primitive or not the higher end type of lodging. There's places out uh, El Sargento, uh, some little towns on the way to the area we fish around Saravo Island. And, and you've picked where you've, you've at, you're uh, working out of more for convenience, you said? Yeah, for more. convenience because being in town, you're closer to more various restaurants out there, you know, in town, in La Paz itself. The place where we stay at is right on the beach. It's probably the only hotel on the beach in La Paz. A nice restaurant, a nice swimming pool, and like I say, white sandy beaches. So it sounds like a place uh, for spouses, whether male or female, to play while you're Fishing, right? Pretty much so, yes. And it's comfortable enough for somebody to, to kind comfortable of Comfortable for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what kind of activities are there for the non-fishing individuals? The hotel can set up a tour for you if you want to go out and uh, 
they have a, a tour shuttle there. I think it's like $30. They'll take you around to the different points of in, interest and show you uh, some of the islands on the Outer Banks there. Um, there's a few places you can go downtown. There's a big cathedral downtown, which is well within taxi distance, probably four miles from the hotel. And there's a lot of historic sites in La Paz to go view too. In terms of different species that you fish for, does uh, La Paz have any advantage over other locations, or are there other locations where you might uh, find a different variety of species to fish for? I've been to a n number of places in the Sea of Cortez, and I've picked La Paz to be my what I call my home base area because of the what I call a nursery around the Saravo uh, Island. Everything that heads north, like right now, the Dorado are heading north towards Mulahe and Loreto. They have to pass through there. So we're picking up the fish as they go up, and we're picking the fish as they come back down. Uh -huh. Pretty much a, up north, like Loreto and the Mulahe area, people key in mainly on Dorado and not a lot of other species. So the, the fish are actually migrating? I mean, they do yes. a migration? Uh-huh. And... and uh, are you speaking about just Dorado, or are you speaking about rooster fish? And no, the tuna migrate up and down the coast, as do the roosters. And what's, you know, what's the reason for their migration? Are they going to, up to For spawn? spawning. Okay, so they go up north to spawn, and yeah. then they come back uh -huh. down? Okay. Do you need a passport to get into Mexico now, or can you just go with a... Uh, yes, you, passports are required. Uh, I think as of this year, you can still use a birth certificate. I have seen that in customs. But I believe in January 2007, it's going to be required that everybody have a passport to get into any foreign country. Um, Mexico is going to probably start cracking down on that, too. So I would advise everybody to start applying for a passport that takes quite a while to get one. Right, right. Or you pay a fortune. Yes. You, know, if you, if you need it in a rush, that's for sure. And what about a license? Do you need a license down in Mexico? Uh, fishing license is required in Mexico, although a lot of people don't think so. Anytime you're in that boat or the ponga, you have to have a fishing license, whether you're fishing or a passenger, just sightseeing. Oh, really? Mm. We have been stopped every, frequently by the federales who come out there and check. Mainly they check the captain's registration and boat registration and things like that. Now, we've only been checked one time for our license, but I've heard stories of people getting checked for licenses and having their gear confiscated, so I really wouldn't chance it. Now, if you're going <laughs> to fish on the beach, no license is required. Is there a best time to go down into that uh, region for fishing? Times I choose to go down to Mexico is about late April, May, June, and into July, like I'm going to go in, in next week. I'm going back down there with another group. May and June, the reason I picked those months is, like I say, the Dorado. Early May, the Dorado aren't quite there yet, but the chances are you're still going to get some yellow tail around there, some yellow fin, uh, a lot of roosters, which this year we didn't have a lot of roosters on the beach, but now I understand that some are showing up. Then later in May and then June and then July, when the weather starts warming up and the water warms up, then you'll start getting more Dorado, sailfish, and marlin. We've had some wahoo in first part of May, but they were moving too fast to cast a fly to them.
When you say moving too fast, you mean they're just they're just cruising up yeah, the coast. Yeah, they, they huh? cruise. They pick up that bait. You you know they're they're down about ten feet. You watch them eat the bait and take off. Huh. <laughs> and re in reality, you're really not set up for wahoo because you're mainly using something like a twenty pound bite tippet or something like that, and they'll cut through that like butter. Is there a hurricane season down in Baja, or a time where? Uh, hurricane season is usually go. towards the end of July, August, and September. We hit it. We hit a hurricane back in 2003, the one that went into La Paz and wiped quite a bit of the stuff out. We were there three weeks after it hit, and a lot of the roads from the airport to the resort at La Con I mean at uh, Las Cervenas, where we were staying. All the royals were washed out, so it took about five and a half hours to get there. Hmm. And a lot of debris was in the water, which is good and bad. You can run over it and damage the prop or something. But one good thing about it, there was a lot of Dorado because there was a lot of debris in the water, which Dorado hang under. Is there a time of year that you don't want to go to Baja? Usually hurricane season. Yeah. <laughs> and other than that, maybe I would say November through February because it's colder water, heavier north winds blow, which blows colder water. Uh, the temperature, air temperature is not as hot. It's probably maybe 70s, maybe 75 at the most, but nighttime gets pretty cool where you probably need a jacket. Uh -huh. But what about the fish in the, in the wintertime there? Are there... Uh, the fishing could be good for, in, like in January, February, and March for, for the yellowtail, cabrilla, your snappers and Sierras. Okay. But you're not going to see any Dorado or rooster fish no, at that time? No, not in, the, not in the early part of the year. Right, right, because they're not moving until, until springtime. Yeah. Okay, okay. Is there a time when when you can depend on whales being in the Sea of Cortez? For people who have been asking about um, We see whales every now and then. We haven't really seen a lot of them over the years. Uh, we did see killer whales this year. Uh, we had a group out, uh, I think it was my second week in May, that saw a killer whale with a marlin in its mouth. It, was, <laughs> it jumped twice, and it was probably, I would th they were probably thinking about 25 yards from their ponga when this thing came out of water with a marlin in its mouth. And by coincidence, nobody took a picture of it. <laughs> they were they were really amazed to see this thing come out of water. You know, all the uh, species down there that you you can catch and see what happens to them. Wow! How big was the marlin? They figure about ninety pounds. Oh, that's what the uh, captain estimated. <laughs> Boy, you don't think of a fish that big uh, as being bait, you know, for another fish. <laughs> but, uh, or lunch. Well, you, you know, you you stop and look at the food chain. Well, you have your Skipjack and your Dorado and your roosters chasing the little sardinas, and then there's other things that are going to chase a skipjack like marlin and sailfish. That's what they key in, and that's one of their main sources of food is skipjack and and the tuna family. So now we know killer whales eat marlin. <laughs> yeah, I guess that must have been incredible to see. Oh, I wish they would have had a photo of it. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, they were all probably so dumbfounded they, they couldn't even oh, think yeah. about taking a picture, you know, at that time. I probably would have been the same way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, see something that big come out of the water in the first place is uh -huh. pretty incredible. Yeah.
So if, if you could take one trip, if you had one trip to go to Baja, what would be the month that you would go? If, if, if I had one trip to go to Baja, it would probably be late May, early June. Uh, like I say, chances of more Dorado, sailfish, and marlin are there. Uh, roosterfish could be tapering off a little bit. There are the cabrilla, the snappers, the pargo are still around. Skipjack, they're there pretty much all year round. So that's a pretty much uh, a, uh, what would I say, a typical fish right there is your skipjack. When people arrange for guides down there, is it oftentimes uh -huh. a local individual or is it someone such as yourself who comes down from the States? Uh, the guides? Yes. Okay, our guides we've had for the past, uh, let me think, 10, almost 10 years now. We've actually trained, out of our eight guides, we've trained probably four of them to be what we call, quote, fly fishing guides. Now, every everybody, pretty much, if you ask them about their guides or who they know is a fishing guide down there, a captain, uh, they always claim that they have, their guides probably a top-notch fly fishing guide. Well, my question to them is, number one, if you hand them a fly rod, do they know what to do with it? Can yeah. they cast a fly line? Do they know, you know, do they know how to strip, how to strip the flies in if they can cast? Well, we've taught our, four of our guides can actually fly fish. One of them is probably, I would say, in a top 90 percentile, uh, because you can hand him a line and a rod and a reel. He'll pull every bit of backing off of there and throw the full line. Now, he's throwing 30 feet of lead core with mm. about 100 feet of monofilament on the back, and he can throw all that out. Wow. Now, to me, that's a fly fishing guide uh -huh. yeah. because he can cast, he can sit down, he can tie your knots for you, he can select the flies. Well, that's what we expect up here in the States. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. Uh-huh. So now if you go down there and you go with a group and they give you a guide or you pick a guide to go out there, he's going to take you out there to fish. One thing he might do is want to troll the fly, which we don't never troll the fly because fly gear is not made for trolling. And a lot of our guys have found that out because their lines get twisted because of the flies rotating in the water and it sends that transition all the way up to through, through the fly line into your backing. So when you strip it in, you have this twist in the boat now. Uh, we had two guys this year that completely erect three fly lines, full integrated fly lines, because they had a twist in there so bad it wouldn't come out. So what we try and do is we try and our captains will get the boat drifting right for you with the current and the winds, and you're the fisherman. He'll put you on the fish, and you're the ones casting to the fish. We're going to take a, a very brief break here, Jay, and uh, when we come back, uh, we'll be talking a little bit about how you set up for the different species. Uh, when we return, okay. we'll be talking more with Jay Murakoshi about catching fish in Baja's Sea of Cortez. The R.L. Winston Rod Company is the maker of the revolutionary Boron 2X, the first and only fly rods that are both delicate yet powerful and weigh up to one-third less than any others. Second-generation boron graphite composite allows us to build lighter, more responsive rods while maintaining outstanding fish-fighting power. Go to your local fly shop and ask to cast the boron 2X. 
offered in three through six weight. Then enter our Cast the Winston Sampler contest. You could win six Winston rods. Visit www.winstonrods.com for contest details and to locate your nearest Winston dealer. Cast a Winston at the best place possible, your local specialty fly shop. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Jay Murakoshi about fishing Baja's Sea of Cortez. If you'd like to ask Jay a question, go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, and click on the link below the description of the show where it says, click here to ask Jay Murakoshi your most important question. We'll receive your questions immediately, and we'll answer as many as we can. Well, Jay, I've got a question in here from Captain Bob Jaspers down in Cocoa, Florida, and um, he wants you, he says, please share your leader setup and your fly line type and size, weight, and so forth. Basically, he's looking, you know, how, how do you rig up down there, and is it, I guess, is okay. it different for different fish? No, I pr my rigging is pretty much a simple, simple setup. Now, I'm using a 30-foot piece of lead core, LC-13, they call it, and I back that up with 30-pound uh, clear amnesia, which everybody usually hates because now they're going to the a lot of the shooting lines that the companies are coming out with. And then backing on that, I use a 30-pound Teflon-coated uh, Dacron backing. Like I say, it's pretty simple. My leader system is about five foot of 20-pound fluorocarbon. Uh, I back that up with about a two-foot section of 35-pound butt for the butt section. Everything on my connections are all loop-to-loop. -loop. I go pretty simple. I don't do a lot of the fancy knots, although I do stress that some of these people use some of these knots because if you're going to go from a 20 to maybe a 60-pound bite trace, you can't tie a, a, a normal knot into the smaller diameter to the larger diameter, so you have to use a different type of knot system. Mm -hmm. And that's why the loop-to-loop, -loop, huh? Yes. Yeah. And then you avoid the, those kind of connections, right? Yeah. Now, one of the knots that I use to connect a bite tippet to my leader is the Slim Beauty knot, which is a fairly simple knot to tie. You can actually tie from 20 to maybe 80 pound on that. I've had, I've had it up to 60 pounds. 80 pound I don't usually take down with me. And what did you say your, your uh, bite tippet, what pound? Uh, sometimes my bite tips up to 60 pounds. Oh, really? Yeah. So we don't have to worry about being uh, leader shy too much down there. Mm, I wouldn't say yes and no because sometimes these, especially the tuna species, will turn off on you. Uh, I don't know if it's it could be size of the fly, color of the fly, or it could be the the leader. Mm -hmm. I have found. In past years, going to a lighter leader, sometimes you'll get more grass, especially from roosters. Jay, what uh, what weight outfit are you using in terms of a rod? And uh, we do have a question about reels as well. Okay, uh, that's one of the questions that we get asked all the time when our groups come down. Well, what weight rod do I really need? Or what, what weight do you use? Well, I tell people I use an egg weight mainly down there. But I don't recommend an eight weight unless you really know the techniques on fighting saltwater species. Uh, the recommended rods I usually tell people are 10, 11, and 12 weights. Um, nine, if you want to go a little bit lighter. I use everything in a nine foot, 
four-piece rods now that I travel with because they're easier to pack on the plane or pack in your suitcase. That brings up another subject on taking your gear down and carrying it on a plane. Some places you can carry this thing on, your rods on and your reels now, but I have found in past experience a lot of times when you leave in Mexico, they will not let you carry your reels on the plane. Hmm. So you can be running back to the check-in counter and putting it in a cardboard box like I did one year and hoping it makes it to LAX. And why is that, Jay? Uh, well, in the early years, they were telling me that the fly line could choke a pilot. Oh, I see. Okay. Well, the pilots are locked in. The people who are going to get choked are the flight attendants. But then I told one guy, well, you got shoelaces on the shoes. Right. You know, and he looked at me like, do you want to stay here longer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, just went, I just went in and turned my reels back in. Yeah, yeah. Not a place to question and argue, right? No. Here's a question from Mike Glasson, who's from Citrus Heights, and you know him. He thanks you for your help over the years with, your, with his saltwater fly fishing. He wonders if you could give three specific recommendations for reels to take on a Baja outing. Okay, this is for Mike Glasson, you said? Yes. Okay, and the three recommended the reels. Uh, I use Bauer reels and T-Bore. Okay. Now, I've also used one, what I call, inexpensive reel down there that's held up quite well. But it's just more of a backup reel, and that's that Echo reel. The six nine—it's the Echo six nine model that has caught some skipjack up to fifteen, sixteen pounds and roosters. But my main—I would say my main reel that I mainly use is a Bauer MX four or a Bauer MX five. Some of the recommended rods, like I said, anywhere between nine and twelve weights. If you're going to go for the bigger species, like the the marlins and the sails, I would say 13 to 15 weights. Once again, all four-piece rods. And I like a fast-action rod where as soon as you set that fly up, it, you, you feel the sting of the hook going into the fish. Now, I, this past trip in May, I did take a rod down there from TFO. It's one of their new rods. It's a 7.5-foot, 8-weight. And I was using that out there one day, and I caught a rooster about 25 pounds on it. So mm. you can see the lighter rods are usable down there. For instance, last year I used an 8-weight rod, and I caught a 75-pound rooster on an 8-weight rod, so it can be done. But for I would say for beginners, I recommend using 10, 11, and 12 weights to, to cut the fighting of the fish down. Are, are you pretty much exclusively using these lead core shooting heads, or do you use uh, other types no, of lines? I, I prefer lead core, but a lot of guys are coming down with the integrated lines, like the reels and the uh, SA the Streamer Express lines. Right. Um, the lines, I would say, line weight would probably be 9 through 12 weight lines. Um, anywhere between 300 and 500 grains, depending on how deep you're going to go for these for the fish. Distance casting isn't really necessary. A lot of our people in this past trip were probably casting and catching fish 
in the 40 to 50 foot range. So mm. it's not it's not the 100 foot range where everybody that I know that's coming down on this trip here, they've been practicing their 100 foot cast. I told them cut that in about half and you'll be okay. I mean I can I can show you that we can catch fish just by slapping a fly on the water with about 10 feet of line out of the rod tip. So you know it's it's pretty much they're in close to the boat. When you're out on the um, on the boat, do you have several rods rigged up differently for different fish? I mean, you could, if you're fishing for Dorado, might you see a, a tuna or you know where you have to switch up quickly? Or not pretty much. You're using the same rod all day, unless I have a couple of rods rigged up. One mainly mainly for marlin and sails. If we do see one. Uh, another one with an intermediate line for top water, in case you want to do some top water fishing, which is a lot of fun. And then I have my standard uh, lead core 30-foot head on there. But I do recommend if you take more than one rod out, only put one rod together at a time because, you know, you, you don't have a lot of space in the boat. And when things get hectic in the boat, rods can get broken. They get stepped on or they get smashed by, you know, by people leaning against the rails. Do, do you, as a host and, and your guides, provide any equipment? Is there any rental equipment um, down there? Or? Me as a host. I have in the past couple of weeks provided people with rods that only bring one rod down and it snaps the first day. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> but I know I, I don't like to do it. I shouldn't say that. But uh, once I think they break a rod, they understand how much pressure they can put on them. <laughs> I do take extra rods and reels down. Okay. The, the captains, they don't have any fishing gear at all. So basically, it's just an emergency only. There's there, there's no, you know, don't plan on having any gear down there to rent. Just bring all your own gear. Yeah. And, uh, and don't plan on having any fly shops in Mexico. Yeah. In La Paz, there's a, well, actually, there's two shops in La Paz that carry conventional gear, but no fly fishing gear. Speaking of flies, we know you're an innovative uh, fly tire, and we, uh, Roger and I have both seen you in action in some of your fly tying demonstrations. There's a, there are an awful lot of questions about the flies that you use down there. Uh, what uh, do you pretty much match up the fly for the species, or is there a fly that'll cross a lot of uh, a, a lot of species for you? Uh, flies can vary. Uh, a lot of people I've seen bring different patterns down that work. I mainly tie up what I call a sea habit bucktail, which is a fly that was designed by Trey Cones up in the Pacific Northwest. My bait fish imitations, like I say, are the sea habit bucktails. I tie it in a, what they call a white knight pattern and a sardina and a flying fish. Now, I try not, I don't go any bigger than a four-aught hook size but my main size is probably a 2-aught with about a 3-inch total length on the fly itself. The, the, the sardinas or the flat iron herring that you're going to catch out there for the bait are anywhere from about 2.5 inches up to maybe 5 inches in length. But you will notice that the fish sort of shy away from the larger baits, and they'll hit that 2 to 3-inch inch, inch uh, bait when they throw in the water. So I try and imitate the same <clears throat> same size, same length of fly, same coloration. Is there a, um, any kind of a resource 
that uh, shows pictures of these bait fish that uh, a fly tire could look at to imitate in a book or anything? Um, I used on my website. I used to have a photo of the flat iron herring, a mullet, and a ballyhoo, which are probably some of the main bait fish down there. Okay. <clears throat> but I'm I'm redoing the website right now, so some of it's been taken off. Okay, but that's what they should look for if whatever yeah. book they find that. Mm-hmm. Are you on uh, circle hooks or a circle type of hook? Uh, no, I use just a, a standard J hook. I've tried tying flies on, uh, actually I, I have tied flies on circle hooks, but I don't have the patience to let them run with it. As soon as I see that grab, I set the hook, and, and that's the function of a circle hook is to have them eat it, turn and then and then hook them in the side of the mouth. Right. Uh, and when the action gets hot, you don't have that time, you don't have that patience. So that's one of the main reasons why I don't use circle hooks, even fishing around here locally for stripers and stuff like that, I'm still using the old J-hook. Do you embellish your flies with uh, rattles or with eyes or that kind of thing? No, I don't. I put eyes on them, but I don't put rattles in them. Okay. Um, just a little bit more time to put a rattle in. I don't think a rattle will will catch any more fish than without. Because the, the fish are in a feeding frenzy, and it's like if you're growing up in, in a large family and you're at the table, it's whoever's there first eats. It's sort of like what these fish are out there. They come in big schools, and they throw the bait, and whoever gets there first is going to eat. Now, do you uh, do you use the short shank hooks? Uh, do you find those? Yes, bit? the hook I'm using has a, a short shank. I'm using the Gamagatsu uh, Trey Combs Blue Water Hook, which is a it's about a two uh, actually it's about a one x long shank, but it, it's more like the the old octopus hook, except this has a, a ring eye instead of upturn eye, and the and the point is in line with the shank hook shank instead of offset. And you like that because it's a it's a sharp hook right out of the box. You don't need to sharpen it. Even even after sticking about four or five fish, it's still uh, sticky sticky sharp to the fingernails. So wow. you can you know you don't have to really hit it with a, a file out there. Speaking of sharp hooks, Jay, could you could you describe to us your technique of sharpening a hook? Okay, I'm using a a, sharp, a file sharpener made by Lord Jensen. I don't know if you ever seen one. It's got the yellow handle and it's a real fine tooth file. Now the way I sharpen a hook is I take it from the rear of the point and I go forward. I don't go backwards and I don't cut it back and forth. Just one pass on each side and then one on the underside to to sort of fine-tune the point, and if there's any little burrs, I sort of take that down real lightly. Okay. You know, I've seen too many people out there sharpening their hooks back and forth with these files and the hones, and it's, all it's doing is it's wearing it down. It just it just takes that chisel point right off of there. So you're taking, you're drawing the file down towards the point and off yeah, the I, point. Yeah, I go from right. the, the rear of the hook forward. Forward, right. Yeah. 
Always the same direction. Always the same direction, but only one one pass on each side. On each side. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. I was looking at one of the questions here was from Don Destin in Florida, uh, and he wanted to know your favorite patterns. Um, and he's talking about for mahi mahi, yellowfin tuna, and uh, of course mahi mahi is again another word for dorado, right? Yeah. They call uh, it mahi mahi in. Oh, actually, they call it dolphin in Florida. Right. Mahi Mahi in Hawaii, Dorado in Mexico. Okay. Um, is the the patterns you'd mentioned before? Are you using those for all the different species? I mean, yes, I okay. use that wherever I fish in the world. Believe me, it's the white knight, the sardina has been probably my favorite patterns, and I also use a fly that's designed by Bob Popovich on the East Coast, out of New Jersey. That's called the hollow fly. Uh, I don't know if, any, if you've ever seen that tide or if I was tying it for you at the Denver show. It's what they call a reverse tying where the tips are forward and the push back with the tube. Yep. Mm, no, I haven't seen that. I've been using yeah. that quite a bit, and it's real light. You can take a, tie a six-inch fly and cast it with a five-weight rod because there's nothing but bucktail. That's it. Yeah. But that's been a, a pretty good, decent fly for a lot of my species, too. And a pretty decent-sized profile, too. Yes. Yeah. Now, Jay, that sea habit bucktail that you tie takes a bit of time. What would you estimate would be your average uh, in tying one of those? My average time in tying a sea habit is probably four minutes. Okay. And what would you say but the average tire is going to spend? Once again, you understand that I've been tying these for years, and I do it commercially, and I'm all set up to sit down and tie at least two dozen at one time. So everything's pre-cut for me. Yeah. Great. Uh, some of the guys that I've been talking to on these trips, it's taking them 25 to 30 minutes per fly. Yeah. yeah. We do have a question asking, what's the easiest fly to tie for use down in Baja? A clouser. Okay. Uh, I would probably say the clouser is probably the easiest to tie. Um or lefty's deceiver, or the bucktail deceiver. Okay. But the clouser, you know, is probably one of the flies that I wouldn't go without also uh, in colors of chartreuse and white. And I, um, the fly size for me, they range anywhere from size 1 all the way up to 4 rot. Uh, the length is going to vary according to the size of the hook. And again, these are all going to catch all the different species that you're after out there. Yes, pretty much okay. will catch all the species in Baja and wherever I'm flying around here looking for the looking for the fish. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's take another brief break. When we return, we'll be talking more with Jay Murakoshi about catching fish in Baja's Sea of Cortez. AST, Advanced Shooting Technology, is the most important development in fly fishing since the invention of modern fly line. Lefty Cray said that, and if anybody has seen it all, it's Lefty. And if any innovation has improved fly fishing, it's AST, Scientific Angler's revolutionary dry slick coating that produces slicker shooting, longer casts, higher flotation, and better durability. Look for AST in Scientific Angler's Mastery Series and Ultra 4 fly lines. And please remember, try an AST formulated line just once, and no other fly line will ever do. Visit www.scientificanglers.com or call 800-430-5000. That's 800-430-5000.
5000 to find your nearest Mastery Series dealer. And tell them you heard about it on Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Well, you're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Jerry Murakoshi about fishing Baja's Sea of Cortez. You can ask Jay a question by going to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, and clicking where it says, click here to ask Jay Murakoshi your most important question. We'll be getting to as many questions as we can. Well, Jay, I've got a question here from another Jay in the Netherlands. Huh. And um, he wants to know, if he's saying, what's the single best fly that, that you would use in saltwater fishing? If you had to pick one of those that you've talked about, which one would it be? One of, if, if I had to pick one of the flies that I talked about, it would probably be my Sea Habit White Knight. But I would say that probably the most single fly that can be used saltwater, freshwater, uh, cold and warm, would be probably a lefty's deceiver. Well, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But down in Baja, you'd say it would be the white knight. Uh, be, my favorite would be the white knight. I mean, you know, it's going to change from fisherman to fisherman, but I think I pretty much have everybody hooked on a white knight right now. <laughs> <laughs> if they're catching fish, I'm sure they're hooked, right? Uh, yeah. When you're out uh, blasting the, the water with that white knight, uh, where are you? Are you fishing on, on flats? Are you out uh, uh, further? What uh, What's the quality or the character of the water that you're fishing? Well, we're fishing anywhere from beach water, which is right right along the beach the beach line, all the way to the deeper water uh, right off the island, where it can be anywhere from 60 feet down to 200 to 300 feet deep. Uh, pretty much these fish are anywhere from, I would say, from the surface down to maybe 20 feet at the most. Because what's happening is your captain is drawing the fish up from the bottom to come feed on the on the sardinas that he's throwing out there. Okay, so, so basically you have, to ch- yeah, you have to chum for yeah, any of these species. Yeah. Lot, like we tell a lot of people, no bait, no fish. When you run out of the bait, you see, you see the truth in what we've been telling them. It's it's pretty tough to bring the fish up. Although we did have one father and son one year, they were cons- persistent on catching uh, 20 skipjack each. And they stayed out there with no bait. And they started slapping their fly in the water, and lo and behold, they caught four fish with the fish coming up to get the fly. Huh. I mean, so it can be done, but it you know probability of of fish count in numbers, I would say no, without not without bait. Is that something your your captain takes care of for you every morning? Or? Yeah, well, every morning when we get there, you, you usually go out and we, we, what we call make bait. Either you can buy it from from the the commercial bait guys who are pretty much where we're at are all relatives or cousins or something like that or friends. <laughs> uh, we did actually see some of our captains that weren't being used as guides were out there netting bait, and they were buying, we were buying it from them. So it's pretty much... A little click thing out there uh, when you get bait, and then when you run out of your first load of bait, usually it's going to take two loads of bait for a fly fishing guy, rather than a conventional because you're throwing more bait to bring uh. these fish up. But your second load of bait usually is produced by your captain. He'll go in and throw a net and net you some sardines, and then you go back out fishing. 
And where does he do that? Where does he capture? Uh, usually along the island, the, the Saravo Island area, depending on time of year and how much bait is out there. This year there is an overabundance of bait, and I think that's why some of the fishing has sort of slowed down because fish don't have to really be picky on bait. There were times that we threw the net one net, and we had enough bait to last probably a full day. And is this something they can just see over the side there? And oh, yeah, yeah. You, I mean, you go into the shallow waters along the edges of the of the shoreline, and, you, I mean, it's just a dark cloud. If you were to look in the sky and see a dark cloud come over, that's what it would look like <laughs> seeing the, sard, the school of sardines coming in. Wow. What, you're, you're fishing pongas? Is that uh, the, the Yeah, ponga is, is, is what they call them down there. They're roughly 22 to 26-foot pongas. Then they have a super ponga, which has a, bim, a bimney on top. Some super pongas have a center console drive also. Pretty much the ones we take out there are about 20, 24, 22 to 24 foot. They're tiller drives. They're pretty much powered by a 65 horse, two-stroke. Some of the guides that now have the four-stroke uh, Hondas, the 50 to 65 four-stroke Hondas, which are a lot quieter and a lot more efficient on gas, so you're not going to be burning a lot of gas. One of the things, uh, we've got a question here from actually uh, uh, Van Geitenbeek uh, okay. from the, the Federation of Fly Fishers, and I guess he says he's fished down there quite a bit. He says he kept a cruiser down in the Sea of Cortez during the 70s, and he still fishes there most years, usually at East Cape or, or with... Uh, Looks like uh, Grant, Grant Hart Hartman and, yeah, cable fishing, yeah. Um, and he, he says um, that uh, that the fishing might not be as good down there or is coming back because of uh, local foreign fishing fleets and, and so forth. What, what's your take on that? Is the, uh, the commercial fishing hurt, hurt things down commercial there? Commercial fishing, there's long liners out there. We've seen them before. We're still seeing them, but I don't think the government's doing anything about it. But I think also the government should enforce a limit on the number of fish. Speaking you know, of Grant Hartman and Cabo San Lucas area, I don't fish down there anymore because of what's happening. I used to fish down there quite a bit, but then every day around 2 o'clock, 2.30, you go down to the dock and you see all these people coming in with their fish. I think one of their main things is they, they want to be able to fly the flag and let everybody know what they caught. Mm. which is fine because you're paying for the trip. But to bring in a marlin or a sail and take a photo of it and then just to dump it, you know, that that's a, a waste of resources. But, I mean, it doesn't go to waste because they cut it up and give it to the local people down there. They bring their bags down there and they take it home to eat. So nothing's going to go to waste. But still, if you catch a fish out there, you kill it. There's one less fish out there to catch now. Uh, my my thinking is I catch and release them. What I did have one guy or one boat last year bring in a sailfish about 110 pounds. They were happy. I couldn't say anything, but I, they understood where I was coming from. They could have took a picture in the boat and released it, but if they don't really regulate what's happening down there, their livelihood is going to be gone. I think, and yeah, then they'll realize it's too late. They're sure dealing with a limited resource. Mm -hmm. Well, you're talking there about sports fishing, but I think uh, Van was talking more about uh, foreign fishing fleets yeah, coming I in. Mean, yeah, there there are a lot of a lot of foreign fishing down there still. 
the long liners. And they don't they don't regulate that, or they? No. Mm -hmm. uh, you're probably seeing more of that up up around Cabo area, and I understand there's been a few around Loretto area doing long lining out there. Where we go in the La Paz, Saravo Island area, we don't see a lot unless you go way out there, 30, 40 miles. That's one thing that we don't do. We don't travel that far out for our fishing because it's really not necessary. Uh, I'll, I'll discuss a little bit about the, the traveling. Now, if you go to Loretto, yeah. like right now, this time of year, everybody's heading up there for Dorado. And I've talked to people who've been up there already, and they do the 25 to 40-mile trip for Dorado or, or Marlin or Sailfish. Whereas if we're fishing La Paz area, we might go maybe seven to eight miles and be into Dorado. Uh, we've had some Marlin and Sailfish in close it's probably maybe two miles off the beaches. So there's a there's a big difference in uh, commuting for to get to these fish. So that's why I prefer the La Paz area. Mm -hmm. So normally it's, it's seven miles, uh, a normal first run out in the morning, is that? Yeah, well, from where we launch at, by the lighthouse to the island, it's a five-mile trip. And then from there, you can go maybe four or five miles out to what we call the shark buoys. Check for Dorado. Uh, some guys just want to strictly do troll, troll a feather jig and try and tease up a marlin or a sail, then they cast to that. Now, you can probably go out 15, 20 miles, but it's really not necessary. I just talked to a friend of mine who's, de who's down there still, and they've been teasing up a lot of marlin and sails. Being, being that the weather's getting a little warmer now, the water temperature's rising, and the uh, air temperature right now is about 105 degrees. When I left, it was only 91, so we're going to be in for a big weather change. <laughs> mm -hmm. When you're playing fish or when you release fish, is there any problem with uh, sharks or barracudas uh, preying uh, on those? Yeah, uh, I wouldn't say it's a problem. It could be a nuisance, more of a problem. Another thing where becoming a problem is big sea lions out there. Oh. I mean, three to 500-pound sea lions grabbing your huh? fish. We had one, my third week in May, one guy had a, a Jack Gravel on about 30 pounds. We had a leader in our hand, and from under the boat, about a 300-pound sea lion came in and grabbed his fish right out, you know, right out from under the boat, and we let go of it, and he, he swam out about 25 yards with the fish in his mouth, and the fly came out of his mouth, so he was okay. But he, then he stood up on his hind end, showing us the fish, what he had, and then he started throwing it in the air, sort of like teasing us. Mm. Oh, my gosh. But uh, sea lion, the big sea lions are becoming more of a nuisance than, than sharks are. But there are a lot of sharks out there, and a lot of... They, at the shark buoys, you can see a lot of makos out there. We haven't seen any whites out there, but a lot of makos and a couple of blues. That's about it. Do you ever fish for the makos? No. I tried fishing for one, but my captain wanted nothing to do with it. <laughs> we actually tried. We saw a, a whale shark. Mm -hmm. I tried fishing for that, but he didn't want nothing to do with that. That was longer than the boat. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that uh, that thing could, uh, whale shark could tow your boat uh, oh, yeah. from there to San Diego, I think. Uh, I'm sure they're, probably they're could. They're plankton eaters. Huh? They're yeah, they're plankton, plankton eaters. eaters. Yeah, they won't hurt yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. 
Are there any endangered species of fish down there? I think they're all endangered. Endangered of becoming extinct if, if they don't start regulating. Yeah. yeah. But as of an endangered species, I don't know of any right now. Uh, I don't really keep up on that stuff. I just sort of go down there and we catch the fish. Now, in the years I've been going down there, I've caught 31 different species so far. Wow. But when you're talking about regulation, you're also you're talking about government regulation of, of the sport fishers or the, the long liners? Uh, yes, yeah, sport fishing. I don't know if you're going to be able to control long lining and stuff like that. I'm sure you could. But it's probably just like fishing game here. They don't have enough people out there to regulate everything. When you're uh, fishing, then uh, you, you chum these. Fi you're doing the chumming, uh, and then are you uh, sight fishing for each of the fish? Pretty much, yeah. When they come up, and they make the big boils. You're going to cast in the direction of the boil. In in May, we had some big schools of of skipjack come under the boat. We had uh, one day we had yellow uh, tail tuna. Not yellowfin, but yellowtail. And then we also had big schools of Jack Crevel. You can pretty much, I mean, look down in the water 200 feet from the boat, and you can see these fish swimming around. One of our schools of jacks we had out there one morning was probably 50 yards wide and maybe 40 yards deep mm. with nothing but busting fish on the surface, and you throw your bait out there. I mean, you could probably cast a, a fly into them and, and hook one. But what we try and do is, if you ever watch uh, the Discovery Channel, there's that one program on there, I think it was called Blue Water, of these fish, the under, underwater photography of, these, of the marlins and the sails and the dorado feeding. They feed on the outside of the bait balls. They go through mm -hmm. and lock, stun it, then they come back and pick it up. So, so what we try and do with the people out there, teach them to throw the outside edges of the, of the bait balls or the boils, and let your line sink and strip through it. So you're looking at a wounded fish on the edge. Which yeah, is, yeah, a, a, a stunned sardina going down. And hope they recognize that, see mm -hmm. that, and, and attack it. Now you, you talked earlier about techniques for fighting saltwater species, and uh, the varying degrees of facility would, would sort of dictate what weight equipment you might use. Could you describe for us the techniques for, for fighting these fish? Uh, yeah. Um, well, I'll reference back to a lot of our guys coming down there. I would say 95% of them are, quote, trout fishermen, and they've never done any saltwater fishing at all, period, so they're in for a new experience. Yeah. Now, some of the guys who have some saltwater experience, like, say, in Alaska or British Columbia. Now we had one guy down there. He he was these fish, you know, and caught 20 pound steelhead. He's telling me all about the steelhead. You know how how hard they are to land. And I said, well, let's try a, about a five pound skipjack. And then we'll test it out and see. <laughs> well, the first thing he did was when he set up on it, he high sticked it, which is what I call sort of like the Orvis position. If you look at their logo with the guy in the with the high stick rod. Uh huh. Uh, once you get a high stick rod like that, your rod is pretty much useless because there's nothing left in that rod to really work the fish. So we recommend and we teach down there to to side swipe these fish, what we call down and dirty. You keep your pull your rod to the side. 
more so because you have more leverage in, in the side pull rather than a, than a high sticking. And if the fish is going to the to your right, we try and pull them to the left and keep sort of lost balance. Because like a lot of experience these people picked up was these the black skipjack or the barrelette, if they go down deep, say I'm talking 200 feet straight down, you're working on these, bringing these fish back up, and they'll go down two or three times. So mm. what you try and do is a lot of people will stop and they'll rest. Like you're, you know, like you, you keep the tension on the fish, but in the meantime, that fish is resting down there too. He's getting more strength on you. We recommend if you're going to do straight down lifts, just you lift the rod straight up, no more than your waist high, and then reel down. Like I tell a lot of people is, even if you gain one inch on a fish, you're going to gain on this thing. You're going to keep them off balance. So just do a one inch lift, reel down, one inch lift, and reel down. And I try and keep the rod tip in the water to use the water as a shock absorber, a little cushion on that rod tip. Because as soon as you get it straight up out of that water, you can see the arc in the rod. We had one guy on the bow of the boat, and he was doing 12-inch strips, and he decided he wanted to go a little faster, and he would. He started pulling about three and a half, four-foot pulls, you know, and the rod's way above his head. And I figured, well, about the fourth pull, the rod's going to explode, and that's just exactly what it did. Mm. The, the, the main thing, if you're using light rods, like I say, an eight-weight, you can take a fish side to side, and work them, and you keep them off balance, you'll get them in the boat a lot faster. Hmm. And you're fighting the fish after you do a strip strike, or is that the strike of preference? Uh, strip strike is probably the preference. Lifting the rod to strike, is by that time you're probably too late. As soon as you fish the, feel the fish, grab the fly, you strip strike it, clear the line, and let them run. Yeah. Well, we need to take a little break here. When we return, we'll talk with Jay Moore about fishing Baja Sea of Cortez and uh, be accepting your questions over the Internet. Flats Time Charters is your sponsor for this segment of our show. Captain Bob Jaspers of Flats Time Charters will introduce you to the Mosquito Lagoon, Indian River, and No Motor Zone of the Banana River on the east coast of central Florida. Only a short drive from Orlando, you'll sight fish big redfish, spotted sea trout, and black drum, as well as seasonal snook and tarpon. And Bob is a lifetime resident of the area, and it shows in his knowledge of the local fish, flora, and fauna. Call Flat Times Charters now and arrange your next memorable adventure. You can reach Captain Bob Jaspers at 321-631-4051. That's 321-631-4051. Or go to the website, www.flatstime.com. That's F-L-A-T-S-T-I-M-E dot com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Jay Murkoshi about fishing Baja Sea of Cortez. If you'd like to ask Jay a question, just go to our homepage at www.askaboutflyfishing.com and click on the link below the description of the show that says, click here to ask Jay Maricoshi your most important question. And we'll receive those questions immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of your questions live on the show. Uh, Jay, we have a number of questions about different species of fish, but for, before we address those, I'd like to ask, I'm guessing bouncing around in these pongas with the wind, you get a few of your anglers who get seasick, and we're 
we've had questions about seasickness and how best to deal with it. Um, yeah, that's a real good question because I keep telling these people you're not in the ocean, you're in a you're in like a bay. If you look at the Baja Peninsula and the Mexican state of Mexico, it's like a big bathtub. But still, I think we we have had people get sick. Um, one guy even got sick just sitting in the boat on the beach. But um, for seasickness, there's marazine. Uh, I take from for my not my purpose, but I because I don't get seasick down there. I take ginger capsules. Yep. That seems to help a lot of people. Uh, I have those ear patches, which sort of makes you drowsy and dry mouth. I I think one of the main thing is to if you have breakfast in the morning, which our breakfast is usually packed in with our lunch. Uh, try to eat something dry like crackers or bread. Uh, I recommend don't drink a lot of lot of beer and sodas out there too, because that sort of sort of will dehydrate you instead of hydrate you out there. If you do get seasick on with our group, we'll bring you back in, and then your captain will go back out with your other partner. <laughs> so don't get seasick, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, let's let's kind of run through uh, some of these different species we've been talking about and. Uh, and, and talk maybe about them more specifically. Let's start out with rooster fish. Okay. Uh, and you've mentioned times of the year, but let's be specific about rooster fish and what would be the best time of year for rooster fish? Well, rooster fish, usually March, April, May, and June, a possibility, but it's getting a little later in the year. The water's warming up. They're more of a low-temperature fish rather than a high-temperature fish. Um, you're going to find it also being different in different parts of the Baja. Like if you go to East Cape, you might find them there uh, from about mid-October, November, December, and January. But you're also going to have the, the stronger winds, so you're going to be contending with the winds too. Like I said, last year, roosters were everywhere. This year, they were pretty hard to find. What's, a, what's an average fish size? What's a large fish? Uh, large fish is like what I caught last year, 75-pounder. An average fish for, say, if I had a one-week group and they were in the fish, probably between 15 and 25 pounds. Are you fishing those predominantly from the surf or from the boat? From the boat. I prefer from the boat. The reason is if you're walking the beach and fishing the beaches for roosters, you see a boil you got to run 50 yards with the fly rod in your hand, stripping line off. By the time you get there, they're gone. Now you got to start looking for them again. Or if you see them feeding out there within casting range, and you can get to them, you're fine. Uh, Punta Colorado is one of the good places down there. Rancho Buena Vista and Rancho Leonero, they all have beach access fishing too, which we do down at the, at the lighthouse. But it's easier to fish from a ponga. You can bottom higher up above, uh, you can get to them quicker. One thing about beach fishing is, number one, there's three things you got to watch out for. You, first of all, you better wear some kind of foot protection on the beach when you're walking. Not mainly, not from the broken glass, but from dried up fish spines or 
dead uh, puffer fish that have been covered up by the sand that you can step on. They're, they're still pretty venomous. They can, you know, they can put a hurt to your foot real quick. So you're talking about a hard sole boot, or yeah, some kind of a hard sole boot or a sandal. Uh, one other thing, when you're wading out there, you can't hit a drop off. It does look pretty flat, it looks shallow, but it can go from knees to over your head in an instant. There's no really heavy surf to speak of where we're fishing at, mainly except when the wind blows. But the other two things you got to worry about when you're wading is jellyfish tentacles or pieces of jellyfish that can attached to your skin that that will still put spikes in you and put the hurt to you and sting stingrays we had a guy hit a stingray in may that he felt like he was dying mm. you know so and he went barefooted he had a pair of shoes on, but he left them on the beach and started wading barefoot and stepped right on it i recommend if you're going to wade to shuffle your feet to scare these things out but if you're going to also wade, wear long pants so you don't get any of these tentacles on you. Are there medical facilities down there for um, Dr. Murakoshi. <laughs> 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 I have I have tended to a few people, but uh, if you need medical attention in the town of Los Planos, where we go through every morning, there is a medical facility there. We have taken a few people in there. It's sort of a little shaky, iffy, but hey, they do work, <laughs> and their fee is only like two or three dollars. Uh, right, had, right, huh? We had to pull a hook out of a guy's ear one time. It was in the cartilage, uh, and they cut it out with a pair of bolt cutters. <laughs> but if you, I mean, if you get sick, like in La Paz, they do have a, a big medical facility, a hospital there. They do have other facilities that you can go to. Um, so far, we've never had to take anybody there yet. Hopefully, it'll stay that way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, back to the rooster. One final question on the roosters. Uh, I, I've heard that, that they can provide some pretty interesting top water action. Is that true? Or? Roosters can get your adrenaline flowing real quick. The thing about rooster fishing, a lot of guys that we've seen over the years aren't fast enough to cast the roosters. They're here, they're gone, they're here, they're gone. I mean, that's how fast they are. And these people see how fast they are, then they realize how fast they got to cast. A lot of people, when they're down there for their first time or their second time, cast too slow, and they're false casting way too many. I, I water load, I, cast, I roll cast, water load, and I shoot it. And that's it. I mean, I'm not false casting two or three times because the fish are gone. We had, I've had people where they false cast two or three times. They're looking around, asking where the fish are at. I said, they're gone now. Mm. You know, you, you can see them. They come in so quick. I mean, it's unbelievable how quick these fish come in, feed, and they're gone. Now, what about uh, the Dorado? Let's switch over to Dorado. Time of year again. What's the best time of year for Dorado? Dorado, I would say from about mid-May, June, July, August, September, and going into a little bit of October. Oh, so all summer, all mm -hmm. summer, basically. Yeah, but that's when it's nice and hot. The water's a little bit warmer, too. So if you can stand 105 to 108 degree temperature, you can probably get in some good Dorado fishing along with marlins and sails. But everything else is probably not going to be there, like your tunas, your yellow fin, your yellow fin, and your roosterfish. Now, you mentioned that you're oftentimes looking for floating 
material to uh, attract the uh, the Dorado? Yeah, um, that's one of the things that we look for when we're out there. That's why we go to the shark buoys because they have big float flotations on the on the lines. And it's not so much the floating object; it's what's under the floating object. That's where a lot of the bait fish hide. Right. Now, one year in Loreto, we were fishing around uh, Coronado, the island there, and one guy said, told us that there was a bunch of Dorado under a coffee cup. Now, we're talking a styrofoam coffee cup that was floating in a cove. <laughs> so we, we went in there, and we looked around, and sure enough, there was like eight or nine Dorado under that cup <laughs> looking for sardinas. <laughs> you know, so... In, in years ago, I understand now down in, in La Paz area, people used to take out sheets of plywood and throw out there. And then let it float and then come back and look for it in a current and then start fishing around that. So it's almost like they, uh, the, <laughs> the kind of an artificial reef kind of situation. Sort, yeah, right? sort of like that. Yeah. yeah you know, sort of like making your own Sargasso weed line. <laughs> yeah. Now, do you yeah. have weed lines down there that, that you fish? No. No weed? No, you... Pretty much, when the wind blows, then you'll get your sargasso, your sargasso weeds blowing, you know, your grass blowing up. And that's one of the key things that a lot of people look for. But also, when you're out fishing for skipjacks and the, and the tunas, you'll also get a lot of dorado just swimming around, curious. You know, they see all these boils and something's out there eating, so they're going to join in. And what's an average uh, fish? And again, uh, what's a large? Which are large dorado? Uh, large dorado, bull dorados, anywhere from 30 to 50, 60 pounds. Uh, some of the average fish that we're pulling in range from 8 to maybe 20, 20, 25 pounds. Some of the fish that we're pulling in that one morning average 8 to 15. And that's a, and that's a good, you know, fighting fish on a 9, 10 weight rod. Especially one right after another. You, know, you hook a Dorado, and they're very acrobatic. They'll jump, and they keep jumping until they get to the boat. You know, and I don't know if you've ever seen a Dorado, but when they're not really what I call aroused, aroused up, they're a real dark black fish. But as soon as they get aroused and get on the feed, they turn the, the bright green colors yeah. and the blues. That's what you always see in the pictures. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah. The, the, you never see them after they've been in the fish box for about two hours. Then they're black. Mm. Mm. Are they a schooling fish? In Pretty general? much, yes. What about the big bulls? Are they right in with the schools too? Or yeah. Do you find those separately. You'll find bulls. Uh, will try and stay with the you know the certain size fish. Uh, a lot of times you'll see singles out there. One of the tricks is if you hook a Dorado, keep it on a line. Don't bring it in real quick. Right. Keep it close to the boat. And he'll probably bring some friends around with him. But there's no real way to target a big bull? I mean, if you're after that? Uh, no. Pretty much. it's, it's luck, luck of the draw. Huh? Yeah, if they come around, then you have a chance at them. Well, how about the uh, yellowtails that you've referred to? Uh, what's your technique for hunting those down? Uh, pretty much the same technique as all your other species is just w look for the boils mm -hmm. and and the feeding fish once you start throwing out the the bait. <clears throat> well, what's amazing is to watch your captain when he starts throwing bait, he can tell you what species is eating out there just by the boils. 
uh-huh. or by looking into the water without without polarized glasses on, he can tell you what's down there. Huh. When, when you're talking yellowtail, now yellowtail refers to a lot of different fish species. When we're talking yellowtail, we're talking about jacks. Uh, no, the yellowtail tuna and the ye- yellowtail tuna and the yellowfin tunas. Now okay. the, the jacks, what, what we call a jack crevel. Right. They're more of a platter-shaped type of fish rather than a elongated split tail. Right, right. Yeah. But they're also referred to as yellowtail as well, right? Yeah, some of them are, yes. But but mainly you're fishing more for the, the tuna then? Yeah, we're fishing the tuna type, the yellowfin and yellowtails. Okay. And those are two different species. Uh, uh-huh. What sizes do they run? The the ye- the jackravels? The yellowtail. The, the yellowtails? The some of the ones we caught this year were probably 8 to 12 pounds. They were smaller ones, but they oh. can't get up to 25, 30 pounds. Mm-hmm. Some of your yellow fins can get up to 40, 50 pounds. Uh, I did see one come in from the north end of the island that a guy caught on conventional gear. It was about 65 pounds. We had one guy in our group about four years ago catch one, I believe it was, 47 pounds on a 10-weight fly rod, about 45 minutes. And again, those uh, those tuna are coming through in schools as well. They're right? coming through in schools, yes. And and the, the tuna are in schools, and usually like in, in uh, the late year, the late months, July, August, September, then you'll start seeing the marlin chasing the tunas, mm. the skipjack. And what? What uh, different species of tunas are are in the Sea of Cortez? They have what they call the barilete or the black skipjack, which is a non-edible food mainly used for shark bait. Uh, We did have one guy bring one in one night and try to eat it. I think it ran everybody out of the restaurant when they cooked it because it's a real dark, oily meat, Uh and it it doesn't smell too good. Then we have the yellowfin tuna, uh, then they have what they call a bonita, not a, there's a bonito is the black skipjack or the, the, or the barilete. The bonita is like what, what we catch down in Southern California or out in the ocean out here. It's, a, it's all, all white belly with a green stripe back from the neck all the way down to the tail. <clears throat> Where a skipjack is marked with three black dots on each side of the breastplate, and it has gray and black markings only about halfway down the back. And then, then we have the, the other the yellowtail tunas, stuff mm-hmm. like that. That's pretty much the tunas that are out there. And what other fish might you target when you're out there or, or run across? And- uh, if you get tired of catching the big species, we take you into the rocks and catch the cabrilla, the pargo, the snappers, the triggerfish. Ladyfish, the Sierra mackerel. Usually, the Sierras are there more in the in the winter months, like January, February, March, or in your late months, out you know, October, November, December. There's yellowtail snappers out there. The big pargos we saw this year. We had one gal hook a pargo that was probably about 20 to 23 pounds. And that was a pretty. And that was. And these are pretty much all reef species that caught off the islands, or near the beaches. There's a bunch of reefs out there that you can you can fish for. There's also the the pesty little needlefish, 
which will tear your fly up and chew your lines up. And another one they call the cornet or the trumpet fish. I'm sure a lot of guys know all about those. So that's so, so in one trip down there you could catch a lot of different species. Yes, we had one guy one year catch 21 species. You know, wow. actually that was almost in one day. <laughs> but he he was a fishing fool, believe me. He he fished from the time we got up. We came back in at two o'clock and this was when we were staying at Los Arenas Resort and he walked the beach from about three o'clock till nine o'clock at night, fishing in the dark. And he he had caught like twenty one different species that day. My <laughs> gosh. Well, that sounds pretty exciting to me. I mean yeah. it's it's uh no you're not gonna get bored, that's for sure. It doesn't well, no. Like. No. Is there usually always something on the bite down there? I mean, uh huh. Yeah. Pretty much uh, all year round, you, you can find something on the bite. For mm -hmm. months, you're going to look more toward your snappers and sierras and cabrillas, uh, some of the roosters. In the summer months, you're going to find your sailfish, marlin, and dorados. When did you say the tuna were going through? The tuna go through usually August, September, and October. Oh, okay. So, so early, late summer, early fall then. I, I would say it probably depends on how hot of weather you want, depending on what kind of fish you want to go catch. What, what's the most exciting fish for you? My most exciting fish is the rooster fish. Rooster. I spend a lot of time by myself when I have my own ponga. We get the bait. I spend all day cruising back and forth along the beaches looking for roosters. Some days I go without a fish. I can spot them, but trying to get them to eat is another story. You know, just, but that's my main fish that I, that I key in on. Do they fish more actively or do they feed more actively at a given time of day? Uh, no, not really. I think their active feeding really shows up if there's a lot of competition for the food. You know, that way they'll, they'll come in and not even hesitate to grab your bait and then take off with it, whether if you only have one or two f fish out there, then they you know, they, they can get really picky on what they want to eat. You can throw your fly down there next to a bait, and they'll pick the, fly, pick the live bait up and leave your fly alone. So the, the competition you refer to is from other rooster fish? Yeah, roosters and jacks and everything else that's out there to eat. Okay. One thing that just kind of tie things up here at the end, uh, we did get a question from Mike in Nebraska. And he wanted to know about uh, fishing for sailfish and what methods that, that you use. Do you fish for those? Yes, we do. Okay. Probably the, the easiest method is to remember to take your own trolling rigs down there for your feathers or your live bait because they don't have the, the rods and the reels down there. Most of these guys are commercial fishermen and they, and they use hand lines. <clears throat> so I, I would take a trolling rod down there so they control a feather jig to tease these fish up, uh, bring the fish into you, and then have your rod fly in hand and ready to cast. Like I say, I try not to get these people to troll the fly because it's going to mess your gear up real bad. Mm -hmm. Now, and and you're you're talking about big rods there, 12 and up usually. To... 12, 13s, 15s. Uh, for this upcoming trick, I'm I'm taking a, a 15 weight rod down with me, just in case, and I just. Matter of fact, right before we came on the air, I just finished one of my big sea habit tandem hook flies, a 6-06 six -06 tandem hook rig. That's about a 14-inch fly. 
And so you you'll just take that ponga around and, and troll that uh, yeah that tractor rig with your trolling and, and until until you find something that starts yeah to tee something up either that or when we're looking for Dorado out there you, he might see a you know a marlin or a sail jumping so we chase after that and we start throwing bait and try and get him to come to the boat and then we throw the big fly out at him. Well, unfortunately, uh, it's time to wrap things up here for this show. Well, that's quick. <laughs> Goes by quick. I, I didn't think I was going to be able to talk this long. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I think you've got a little bit left in you there, Jay. But uh, uh, those of us that know you, no, no, that's not a problem. But uh, <laughs> actually, it's not a problem for most fishermen, I don't think. Uh-huh. But, uh, talk about something you love, you know, it's easy to talk about. Oh, yes. Well, when we return, we'll be... Uh, drawing for that Clouser Tropical Fly Line and a dozen of Jay's favorite flies, so stay tuned uh, to see if you win. The Federation of Fly Fishers will hold its world-renowned annual fly fishing conclave this year in Bozeman, Montana, July 26th through the 29th. With over 100 programs, workshops, and demonstrations, the conclave offers the finest educational experience to be had in fly fishing. And you can enjoy the beautiful Gallatin River Valley, only a short drive from Yellowstone National Park. For further information, including lodging and transportation, go to the Federation of Fly Fishers website, www.fedflyfishers.org. Be sure to listen to our show on July 19th, just a week before the conclave. We'll be interviewing key individuals from the Federation of Fly Fishers and asking them your most important questions. From the Ask About Fly Fishing events calendar today, we see in Michigan there are one-day youth fly fishing schools offered Monday through Saturday, July 10th through 15th. These take place on the Manistee River at the CCC Bridge Campground and equipment is supplied. Sponsored by John's Guide Service, there will be casting, knot tying, entomology, and on-water instruction. Contact John Kestner at 231 3692997 that's 231 3692997 his website is www.johnsguideservice.com again j o n s guideservice.com and remember you can list any fly fishing related events yourself on our events calendar don't forget to remind your local clubs and fly shops to list their happenings on the calendar, and we'll be highlighting one event from the calendar on each of our shows. Just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave our website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section uh, for tonight's show, and it says, what did you think of this show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. We'd sure appreciate it. Well, it's now it's time to give away that Clouser Tropical Fly Line and a dozen of Jay's favorite flies that you can use in Baja or for stripers. As you've heard, Jay uses uh, these same flies uh, throughout the country, throughout the world, in fact, for saltwater fishing. In case you're wondering how we do this, we just press a button and up pops a name. Our computer program randomly selects someone from this show's registration database. If you didn't register tonight, make sure you do on our next show. If you're the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show and we'll provide you with the information on how to receive your gift. So... Here it goes. I'm going to pick the winner, and the winner is Teresa Adams in California, Jay, so one oh, of your right. fellow Californians. And uh, Teresa will be the, the proud winner of that. Congratulations, Teresa. Yeah. And um, 
So thanks, Jay, for, for offering that up. And All right. Thank you. You're yeah. welcome. Yeah. Well, Jay, we, we can't tell you how much we appreciate you being with us tonight. You've uh, really give us, given us some helpful insights into fly fishing tropical saltwater, and uh, uh, for some of us, that's, that's new territory. We're, we're anxious to try out some of your tips. Uh, I think we've got fertile ground here that I'm hoping you will join us again in the future. Oh, sure will. Great. I really enjoyed this tonight. Well, good. We were glad to have you. Well, our next broadcast will be on July 19th at 7 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And on this show, we'll be interviewing Van Geitenbeek, Chairman of the Board, and Ron Cordes, Vice Chairman of the Board of the Federation of Fly Fishers. Van and Ron will be answering your questions about the FFF, their role in uh, the fly fishing world, their goals, their ambitions as an organization. Whether you're a member or not, listen in to find out what this fine organization is doing for you. It's going to be an exciting show, so don't miss it. We'd like to thank 3M Scientific Anglers and R.L. Winston Rod Company tonight for sponsoring our show. And don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you won't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. And feel free to explore the other areas of our site, like the events calendar and the directories. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.